whenever you encounter uh, a crying baby or a child that's been hurt and they're crying, a young toddler, and you pick them up, and the reason, you know, what, the reason you pick them up is you want to assure them of something. I don't know what you say, what we're all tempted to say, but we, we grab them, we put them right here, we pat them, and we say, it'll be okay. It's going to be okay. And um, that's what we long to say all the time, and what we need to hear said all the time, that it's going to be okay. Um, even when we pick up our child and we're some friend or someone that's in dire straits and they have something very difficult going on in life, and we, we know that it's really not going to be okay. Some level. And yet, you ever have that feeling like, even when you know, it's like, I feel like I need to say it's going to be okay. <laughs> I feel like I just want to say that. It's going to be okay. I think that points one of our greatest longings is that we need to know in this world and in this life, no matter how well it's going for you right now, all of us at some point and oftentimes more than we're willing to admit, we need someone to tell us, okay, someone who can say it and mean it and deliver on it and um, Revelation is essentially a book, and we're not going to study the whole book this time. It's an unusual one. I haven't studied it ex explicitly uh, all throughout over time, looked at it and that. But it's a, um, it's a difficult book to handle. Actually, Calvin nor Luther wrote commentary on Revelation. They, some hard things. But we're going to look at a passage today that's a lot clearer, that everybody's pretty clear about. And, um, and people can get caught up in thinking that Revelation is about um, so-called wanting to understand the predictive future. But here's what I want you to know about Revelation. Revelation was given to the Apostle John. He's the last apostle living. He's on the island in Patmos. And by the way, he, he had been with the resurrected Jesus. And he had been with him. He had seen him walk on water. He had seen him raise people from the dead. And he's some 60 or 70 years, the last apostle living. And the church is exploding in many ways. And yet it's being persecuted in tribulation and so many things are going on. And guess what the apostle was given? The last revelation that he was given by God, that an angel, Jesus Christ himself, Revelation 1-1 tells us, that an angel was sent by Jesus Christ to tell him a vision, to tell John what he's supposed to tell the people and write this. And here was primarily one of the main themes of it was this. It's a book of comfort. And to tell God's people, it's going to be okay. In the end, it's going to be okay. John, saying to his brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to lay hold of this great truth. That God is on his throne. He is sovereign over all things. And he's in control. And it's going to be okay. Now, that's the long view. Doesn't mean that everything between now and then is easy. Doesn't mean that people don't die. Doesn't mean that people don't have bad things happen to them. It's not what it means. It's talking about spiritually in the grand scheme of all existence in life. He's telling the people it's going to be okay. Now, to me, uh, that's I, if you were like me and we just come out of Judges and we've wrapped that up. It's 
study Judges and you finish and at the end there and you're like, is, is it going to be okay? Look what God's people are doing. Not just the Canaanites, look what God's people are doing. On top of that, it makes sense. So we're in this Advent season. We need to know and be reminded that it's going to be okay. But on top of that, they kept sending remember judges to sort of rescue God's people, but it didn't make everything okay. And so our series for these last three Advents, these two Sundays and the Sunday before, is, is anyone worthy? Can anyone make it okay? That's going to be our series for these two weeks. Tyler Soul and I have written this together. He's going to preach next week. And this morning, we're going to ask the question, who is worthy to make all things okay for us? Next week, he'll say, why is he worthy? And then on our Christmas Eve survey, we'll look at the two emotions that we see in this Revelation passage. So we're going to be in Revelations 1, 5 through, 1 through 10 for these three Sundays. And we'll look at that. And this morning, we'll look at these three thoughts from our passage and answer this question. Is anyone, who is worthy? Who can actually make things okay? And we're going to look uh, our outline will be the scroll, the seals, and the Savior. Scrolls, the seal, and the Savior. Let me pray. God, would you, would you comfort your people through your word? Would you speak to our hearts and minds? Would you speak to our, uh, even our hands? Would you change the way we live? And may we... May we be comforted by you today. and um, Lord, help us to rightly position our lives in this Advent season. The Advent is in darkness, and there is a light that has come and dawn. But this, this tension of the darkness that we remember and the God's people long for, and we long too because we, you have not yet come again, and we long for you to come again. In the meantime, there is darkness, there is brokenness, and we declare to you, just for today, probably everybody here just needs to hear from you, God, just for, to get through the rest of this day and this week. Is it going to be okay? Are you king? Are you there? Are you worthy? So help us to see that this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. All right, so uh, uh, John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile there. there. He will be killed by poison. And uh, executed a martyr's death just like the rest of the disciples in different places all over the world. But so you think about that context here, and he's the last living, and he gets this vision of that. And so we're, as we enter into chapter 5 of Revelation, I'll just sort of, sort of, as we go, you'll help to understand sort of where it fits into the story of the book. Let's begin there with a scroll. We're going to look at the scroll first. Verse 1, then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So what, 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 is, what is this scroll and what's on it? That's the question. You know, you know, there is a scroll here. Now, let me just pause and say one of the ways that maybe is helpful to read uh, Revelation is to think uh, like hieroglyphics, like pic- pictographs. Like It's lots of symbolism in order to help you understand the truth. So is there literally a, a lamb with seven horns? No, we, we don't think so. But the symbolism that God is Jesus is trying to communicate. And if you're a, if you're a first century Jew, many of these things are going to make sense to them. Because it under, it's culturally to them, it, it resonates. And so it's going to resonate to John in the same way. So what is on the scroll? A scroll would have been normal for kings to have scrolls and declarations. So there's a scroll here. That's not weird from that. Think of 
uh, email. I don't know what, you would, what we would have today, but there's a scroll. So what's on it? What's on this scroll? Now listen, there's, ton, there's not really much debate around what's on this scroll. There are a few views, there's four, three or four views out there. But the major view for a long time in church history and consistently across the board is this. That, that this scroll is a comprehensive, unchangeable plan. All of God's plan for all of history and all of life is on this scroll. That's what it is. From the falling of the heavy hair on your head to every dear believer to the last world-shaking event reported in today's news, everything on the scroll, the destinies of every atom on the earth as well as the mighty galaxies of the cosmos are there all the questions, all of life. Like you want to know, like, why did this happen, Lord? And why did it go this way? And why did my loved one die on this day? And how, why did it go that way? All the answers to all of life, everything and what's going on is right here on this scroll. That's what we believe. One of the things you can conclude from this, uh, this, th- this scroll is that God himself is the one who's written it. It tells us that. It's written, and he's the one that's written it. Listen, we're not writing the story. Actually, he's not writing the story. He's written the story. Our God is not a God who's doing things on a whim. He's not trying to figure it out as he goes. Your life and mine. He's not, we don't believe in open theism. We don't hear, some Christians, but we don't believe here in open theism that God is sort of trying to manage this thing and swoop in as a hero here and there. No, we believe everything is unfolding just as he's planned. There is no plan B. There's no contingencies. His decrees are taking place. Now, I know as you hear that, you're like, well, does anything matter we do? Yes, it does. Somehow in the scriptures, we're not robots. Our choices matter. But the overarching principle that is always true, it's not mutually exclusive that you and I have decisions. It's not mutually exclusive that it looks like things happen. What the scriptures teach is it's not. There's a plan A. And there's only a plan A being executed here. There is a monarchy. The king is executed. He's working it out according to his plan. His plan is fully thought. It's fixed and unchangeable. You notice that the passage says it's full. It's on both sides. Most of the time they just wrote on one side. But here the scriptures want us to know it's on both sides. Meaning it's not needing anything. It's not absent of your mind to it. It's a complete story, and it's, but it's also sealed, and it's hidden. It's hidden, and we don't know it all. Isn't that one of our greatest struggles, that we wish, we wish that we can know everything? We sort of have that. We're living in the information era. But we think we ought to know. We think we know best, and we think we could add to his plan. I mean, do you, do you think about that way? But the reality is you and I can't handle this thing. the one writing it. He's the one who has written it. It's not missing. It's not need of our input. And notice where the scroll is. I want you to see that. That's what it is. But where is the scroll? It's in a throne room. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, in this vision, 
uh, we learn that John is led by the angel through a door. And it's like he's walking into the, the palace. And what Revelation is, 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 is really God pulling back the sort of the window of reality, that there is an unseen world. And he gives him a vision to help him unsee, to see sort of what's unseen and have these symbols to understand what's really going on in history and life and how God's thinking about it. And he's exploring and walking through, in a sense, through the throne room. So this particular scroll, which is all of life, was written by the king. That's where this scroll is. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and breaks his seal. That's the question. Who can open this thing? Who can open it? Who, who has the power to make sure it's executed? Who has the power to make sure this story is a good story and it ends well? Who is worthy of that? But it's an angel. Notice that. That's throne room imagery. The angels mean that this is in the king and you're in the presence of a king. Angels were, it's just like if we were to go to Buckingham Palace or if you, were to, you would see guards out front. I've been there. If you were to go to see our president at the White House, there would be guards and everything. The, the infantry, the Lord of hosts is there. The angels are there. And by the way, these aren't little fat babies flying around with wings on them. That's not a biblical view of them. There's actually, it's incredible, but they are not, we know that they have men names, Michael and uh, the other one, Michael and Gabriel, right? Those are the two men names. We don't know, but it's, that's the only names we're given. They're men. They're powerful. They destroy everybody who encounters these angels. They, they start with fear. Mary's like, the first thing the angel says, don't fear. The first thing the angel said to, to Gideon, don't fear. I mean, that's that. Here, here's a couple of pictures just so you know, so you sort of get out your little whatever, modernize up. That's one. All these eyes from Revelation 4, and that, that's an intimidating thing to see, right? Here's another one. We, we don't know. People are giving, trying efforts to that. Look at the eyes that are in every part of the wings. Some that, I mean, um, certain angels' aspects have a head of a, an ox, of an eagle, of a lion, of a human. I mean, it is big. This tells us this is a place of power and authority. That's where this scroll is. And then the other thing to know where this throne is, our verse, the verse tells us in verse 1 is that it's in the right hand within and saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, written on that, was sealed at his right hand. And anything, this is most consistent in the Bible, when anything is talked about the right hand, it means authority, power, and sovereignty. So this scroll that contains all of life is in the throne room and at the right hand of God. That's what the imagery is saying. So then it's sealed. The second part is, and it is sealed. We get to verse 3. The question is asked in verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And by the way, seven seals. That's a number of potentially completeness in the Bible. So it's completely sealed. Like this thing is sealed by God in its way. And, it, um, and it's hidden from us. And so verse 3 says, and no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So the first thing we learn is that no one was found worthy. Verse 4, I began to weep loud because no one was found worthy to open. There's no one worthy to open it. There's no judge who can rescue God's people fully like we looked at in the judges. There's no one who is worthy. One commentator says this, he says, there's nothing more deplorable more calamitous in the story of mankind than our total unworthiness as sinful creatures 
in the presence of our maker. Nothing is more lamentable than the fact that by our own ungodliness, we have deprived ourselves of worthiness. So the answer to that is that I'm not worthy. You're not worthy. Because of our sin and our separation of God, none of us are worthy. Do we have the power? And not only that, we are disqualified from our sin, but we're not God and we are unworthy. We can't do it. Let me just pause for a minute as we look at all of life that this king is running. What do we usually think? That we usually think that we're worthy to handle this thing, that we know best. We think we know that. When, when we complain about our momentary circumstances, we say, I'm worthy to write that thing. I'm the king. I, I don't like what's going on. I don't like the way he's written this thing out. That's the ultimate of complaining. Sin in the garden was wanting to be like God, was to be king. When we defend ourselves, when we defend ourselves, we're trying to tell the story about who we are instead of letting the king say who we are. And in that moment, and you're a sinner, and you're wrong. Quit defending yourself. I love you. You're also a child of the king. But we defend ourselves because we want to control how you see us. And defend us. Racism. You can trace all of our sins to some level. We think we're king and we're worthy of things. Racism is to say I'm better than this race. Therefore, I'm more worthy than you are for whatever this thing is. I mean, you see that. No one is worthy. And the response of John Notice what he says in verse 4. I began to weep, but not just weep. That weep there is a wailing. The adjective is added to loudly. There could be nothing more sad for you and I than for someone not to open the scroll and execute the redemptive story of history. Nothing is worth, nothing could be more Terrible for us and the thing that we should weep about. Noah and John lamented because no one in heaven or on earth and under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Notice it says John did not even look into it. This, is the real, this realization shattered him. And he said, I began to weep loudly because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. He weeps because he knows that there will be no salvation for God's people. There will be no coming of God's kingdom, no hope for the human race, unless someone can accomplish the purposes of God and fulfill the problems. They could break the seal and execute it. He knows that. It's interesting, in the Bible, I did a little trace of this, but every time you find an apostle weeping in the New Testament, it's because he is burdened with the need for forgiveness or the need of the world for forgiveness. Peter weeps because of his sin in Matthew 26, 75. You remember that when he denied Christ. Paul weeps because he felt his fellow Jews lie in wait to sell him in Acts 20. When they were to kill him, he was weeping over those who were going to kill him. The way Christ said, have mercy on them, sinners, when he was dying for us. He also weeps over, Paul also weeps over the church that was fallen in a disorder in 2 Corinthians. And because many walk as enemies of the cross in Philippians 3. And here in Revelation, John is weeping as a fellow apostle. That no one can open the scroll. Hendrickson says this, you will understand the meaning of these tears if you constantly bear in mind that in the beautiful vision of the opening of the scroll, by the breaking of the seals indicates the execution of God's plan. When the scroll is open and the seals are broken, 
then the universe is governed in the interest of his church and his bride. Then God's glorious redemptive purpose is being realized. His plan is being carried out, and the contents of the scroll can come to pass in the history of the universe. But if the scroll is not open, it means there will be no protection for God's children in the hours of bitter trial, no judgments upon the persecuting world, no triumph for believers, no heaven, no earth, no future inheritance. Let me just ask you, friends, brothers, sisters, what do you weep over? What do you weep about? I had the privilege of spending some time at breakfast with one of our officers this week. I won't use their name. Sat down to eat with him. Showed me an email on his phone. Crying about the persecuted church and some people he'd been praying for who are about to die. Over the, over the weekend or during this week at the persecuted church in the country that he prays for and sponsors. Convicted what he was weeping over. You and I weep. By the way, that's great news to have an officer who weeps over those things. Do you weep about your need for forgiveness of your sins? Do you weep for a perishing world? Do we weep for the disorder and the corruption of the visible church today? Do we weep for those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ? Many Christians seem complacent or indifferent. Some are angry and others are fearful. But who is weeping today? Who's weeping? Are we weeping and why? And listen, part of Advent, the goal of Advent, I didn't grow up doing it. It's always been a thing I've been working through since I've come to the PCA. But I, my understanding is part of the PCA, Part of Advent is learning to learn to weep. So that the explosion of joy when Christ comes means something. For dramatic purposes, oftentimes we could just stop right there and not and just say, oh no. We could just be quiet. I know that it feels like sometimes in life that the weeping is too much for various reasons. I want you to know that, by the way, our Savior, when he came, he did weep. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he wept. He weeps with us, and he grieves with us. He knows what that's like. Verse 5, we get to the Savior, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and his seven sins. Now look, it's the elders who come over. The elders probably represent the church, human beings around the throne. But it's interesting that the human comes over and tells it, because the humans are the ones who need the help. He's like, i got to tell you this. The angels don't declare it here. They're asking the question. But an elder who's before uh, before the throne, a fellow human being is there, and he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He tells them to weep no more, and he tells them, Behold, listen, most of life, if not all of it, is us learning how to pause right there and believe that we don't need to weep anymore, and that we can behold something that can sustain us forever. There's something that will stop the weeping. 
And part of the application is, is that, if I forget it at the end, is behold. Behold who, what he's about to tell us. Our life is primarily learning to behold this well. So that it might affect the way we live and breathe. But we would behold it. And there is no weeping. Behold. And he says, this is the Lion of Judah. This is the only time in the Bible the Lion of Judah is used. You may have heard that all your life, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. We had the hint of it in Judges when, when uh, Jacob gave the prophecy over his son, Judah, who would be the tribe of Judah. But this is the only time this phrase is used. And it's used because it's a, it seems to be so popular. It seems like because we love the sound of that. We need a lion, the majesty and the power of all that a lion represents. He's the lion of Judah. And he's telling us that. Man, John would have been like, yes, he's a first century Jew, the lion of Judah. Judah! He's promised this. The prophecies have said that. And then the root of David, the house of David, would be almost cut off because of sin. It seems like it. But the root of Jesse, some call it. That it looks like, because David's not a good king either, although he helped the judge's situation and God's people. But there was a root, a spring that came out from that root that seemed hopeless. And there is hope. And it's coming from the root of Jesse. And it's coming. The promise describes Jesus who was born out of the line of David. The line, L-I-N-E, the line of David, when the household seemed virtually snuffed out. And so in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horses, I mean with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. So then it shifts. It's an interesting shift. He tells him, there's a lion of Judah has come. But then he turns and he looks to the cross and it changes. It's not a lion. He hears lion, but he turns and what does he see? He sees a lamb. He's the lion and the lamb. The majesty and the transcendence and the power and the authority of God is also manifested, collides with the reality that he is gentle and kind and sacrificial and humble and he would come to you. He's everything I'm not. I'm either one of the two. I'm either a roaring lion in my home or I'm a pushover for everybody. I'm neither boast, but our God is the full lion and the lamb. That's an incredible tension oxymoron. I don't know what it is, but it's incredible. And that imagery of it is full for us. We have a lion and a lamb. And he turns and that's what he sees. And when he sees it, notice it tells you what's going on with it. Some 28 times in the Revelation, it talks about God being the lamb. And, uh, and Jonathan Edwards said, um, uh, what he said about this in one of his sermons, he said, this above all, yet is the lowest of all humility and the person of Christ meets together with infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. And so the lamb, John, has to be thinking, the lamb that provide the way for Abraham, the lamb at the Passover, well, a lamb was slain, and this lamb is slain, this lamb is slain. It tells us in the passage that he was slain, but he's standing. You ever thought about that tension? Wait a minute, I thought he died. But he has triumphed over death because he's a living lamb. There's blood on him. Look, I think I have a picture of here. And he has seven eyes and seven horns that go to seven places in that. This is uh, what he is in seven, complete number, right? We think mostly, most, most commentators think that those seven things represent the, the eyes. That There's no place he cannot see. He sees everything. That's why he can execute this plan. He sees everything. The horns of the power. Seven horns mean complete power. Horns are symbolic of power. He alone has the complete power to execute the plan of this scroll. And he's able to, his presence is everywhere. That's what it means when his spirits will go out. He will go. Who is worthy? The lion and the lamb. He's worthy. God is saying to you, there is one who is worthy. And it's going to be, oh. 
God is picking up John, crying baby. And he's picking up his church and the seven. There's some warning to the churches, the seven churches he writes to. He's picking them up, patting them on the back. It's going to be okay. What we need to hear in the Advent beginning of the plan, part of the plan executed, Christ came. So how do we respond? Some of it's in the verse here, noticed in verse 8, that when, he, when in verse 7, he took the scroll from the right hand and him is seated on the throne. Jesus does it. The lamb does it. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 fell down. There were some other creatures around the throne that were in verse chapter 4. The elders, all the people fall down and they know this right. And he's holding a harp. Music playing, I'm not going to get into all that, but one thing to notice is that the golden bowl is full of incense. That golden bowl is probably, the, which, is the, which are the prayers of the saints, meaning every prayer that's been before the throne, and you've wondered and prayed, God, what's going on? Why would you please do this? Do you know that your prayers forever stay before the throne of God as an aroma in his throne? Every prayer that you've ever prayed is still there. That's what this means. And so as the lamb is taking it, they fall down. It's like, yes, my prayers and everything I wonder, it's here. It really is. There's a reason that students go to their sororities and go to their places and, and places to hang out. Why? Because there is one who is worthy. And he hears everything I'm doing. And if he answers no, he's written it. It's good. And the prayers of saints, and they sang a new song. May we sing a new song. Tyler's going to tell you why he's worthy next week. But Revelation, what we've looked at this morning, 5 tells us that he is. He's the one we're here. May you behold him. May you trust him. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, sing our song of response this morning, you grant us um, the beauty and the hope that there is one who is worthy. There is a good and better friend, a good and better judge. There's one who can take the scroll and break its seal. Glory to you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.